Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Katrina Matthews, and I'm Managing Editor at Continued Social Work. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Ben Bencomo, discussing school social work and efforts to support students in public schools post-pandemic with our guest, Capella Howard. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Dr. Matthews. Welcome, everyone. I am very excited about our podcast today. This is a topic that I know many of our listeners have uh, probably been encountering in their work in uh, different school systems, both public and private, post-pandemic, and supporting students K through 12. And I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Capella Hauer. Capella Howard graduated from New Mexico Highlands University in 2015 with her master's degree in clinical social work. Since then, she has worked as a school social worker, primarily in the elementary setting. She has provided trainings on both self-care as well as trauma-informed work in schools. Capella recently achieved national certification through the School Social Work Association of America, the first to achieve this certification in her state. She is currently a practicing school social worker in Tucson, Arizona, working part-time in schools and part-time for the School Social Work Association of America as their membership coordinator. And I must say I am doubly excited for today's podcast because it is always fun catching up with former students and seeing all of the amazing things um, that they are doing. And Capella, you really are doing some amazing things. and, And it's really fun for me because I get to flip the script and learn from you today. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I just, you know, want want you to know and let, let our listeners know that I'm going to try to show up today just as my authentic self. Um, school social work is really near and dear to my heart. I mean, this is the niche that I've found myself in and haven't left yet. So I'm sure I'll share some personal opinions today, and I want everyone to know I'm not an expert. I don't believe anyone can be an expert in anything. So um, my hope with this and having this conversation with you, Dr. Bencomo, is just to um, hope that our listeners become more interested in school social work, or at least, you know, what's kind of going on in our schools right now, and then really do some more research and advocacy afterwards. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for that. Well, your your experience and your practice wisdom is definitely something that we appreciate you sharing with us today. Now, if we can start from the beginning, if we will, I'm always interested to know a little bit about guests' path to social work. I do remember some of this uh, story from you in, in, in class when you were completing your master's, but would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about your path to social work and your social work? education background. So how did how did social work find you, Capella? Yeah, of course. I think I've always been <clears throat> one of those helpers, right? Um, I think a lot of social workers can identify with that. But even when I was younger, or um, I especially remember a little bit more vividly in high school, I tended to be that student that other kids would come and talk to if they had an issue um, at home or at school. And it just always felt very natural for me to kind of help problem solve, lend an ear, or just be someone that they could 
vent to, you know. Um, and then as my high school career was sort of coming to an end, I didn't want to at first attend a university because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And um, so I just ended up doing a lot of volunteer jobs. I was working at our animal shelter. I was volunteering at our local domestic violence shelter. Um, and it just sort of came, became a little bit obvious to me that like all the jobs and things I really like to do were um, kind of in the direction of social work. Um, or at least, you know, all these volunteer jobs. And I was like, well, I can't just keep volunteering forever. I should probably <laughs> start a career and I need to be able to pay rent. Um, <laughs> so I had kind of debated back and forth on whether I should do social work or psychology. Um, and I just found for me, for my personality, it felt like it fit more with social work because I could experience all sorts of work settings. Um, working in prisons and hospitals, schools, all sorts of um, different niches. So I ended up choosing social work, obviously. Um, and yeah, and then I ended up getting both my undergraduate and my master's degree from New Mexico Highlands. And ever since then, I've been working in public schools as a school social worker. That's great. Yeah, thank you, Capella. Well, we're definitely glad that you, you found your way to social work. I know that you've already been engaged in doing a lot of really good work. So we're, we're happy that you found your way to our profession. Um, now, how did you, after graduation, how did you first become interested in school social work specifically? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I guess I should have said too, like more specifically that got me into social work was I really wanted to work in the field of adoption. Um, for whatever reason, I think I really idealized and like romanticized the whole work of adoption. Um, I now realize it's much more complex and not as beautiful as I think I may have had it in my mind, that whole process and that work. Um, but really actually it was New Mexico Highlands that kind of led me to school social work. Um, I'm, I know you know Dr. Bencomo, but some of our listeners might not know that Highlands is in a really rural area, um, and that just translates to kind of limited opportunities for internships. Um, so I've always enjoyed working with kiddos. Um, I've always really connected with them, and a really close friend of mine from high school ended up being a school counselor. Um, and so I always really admired that career that she was creating for herself. Um, and that kind of had a connection with me. And so I had a wonderful opportunity actually to do internships at um, the elementary, middle school level, as well as an alternative high school uh, for my practicum. And once I started that, I it all kind of like clicked and I knew that that was a space that I really wanted to stay in. And I also think, like I think back about when I was like a six year old who was like playing school with my cousins growing up. Like there's definitely that little girl in me who's like so psyched that I grew up to be like working in schools. Um, so yeah, those, it's always just kind of been thrilling to me. I really, I love collaborating with the teachers and different professionals on campus. Um, I really enjoy getting to really know families and kids and advocating for them um, and then working with students like one-on-one -on -one and in group. Um, 
it's just, I don't know. It was just a blast, and obviously I haven't left. So. <laughs> well, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, that that's amazing. I, I'm glad that that internship sparked this interest for you, and that you were able to find your your niche within the social work profession. Because I know since that time you've been able to do some pretty incredible things in the area of school social work. Um, now, many times I think that. Uh, social workers aren't sure about what is required to become a school social worker in particular. Is there a specific educational path? Is Are there licensure requirements? So if you could, could you clarify for our listeners, is an MSW required for a school social work position or does the BSW suffice? And also, are there any specific licensure requirements um, that are that are needed for school social work practice? Yeah, so this is where the practice of school social work gets a bit tricky um, as far as requirements. So this is something that our profession is really trying to work towards. But right now, unfortunately, school social work doesn't have parity across the states. So each state and even down to like each district within states can have their own requirements. A vast majority of school social work jobs do require at least a minimum of a master's degree. Um, There's some that that do work on a bachelor's level, but um, I've found that that's more in rural areas and their work is primarily like a broker or community liaison. And they might even have like a specific focus or even a different title. So rather than school social worker, it might be a title like behavior interventionist or attendance clerk or homeless liaison. Um, and I think like Alabama, Louisiana, these are those are some of those states that might have positions like that. Um, and so for another example, like I'll talk a little bit about Missouri. So in Missouri there isn't a master's degree required by the state. However, most of the school social workers in Missouri have a master's degree and most positions require an LCSW. um, And that's becoming more and more common. There's like some districts and agencies who contract to provide mental health in school service or in schools. um, And they, you know, might hire bachelor's level, but not often. Um, and of course, school districts prefer, like when they're hiring, they prefer to see social workers who've had either school-based practicums or some type of experience with direct practice with youth. Um, so yes, I would say overall, vast majority of the positions require an MSW. Um, and then like the second part of your question, it gets even more, a little more complicated um, as far as like certification. So again, it's different everywhere. Some states have their own certification requirements. So like California, um, in order to step foot in the school as a school social worker, you have to have the state certification. Um, Here in Arizona, we have a certification through the Department of Education, but it's not required. Uh, It's up to each district if they want to list that as a requirement. So, and I will say too, you know, part of the work we're doing as a profession to try to create more consistency across the board, um, 
SLA, the School Social Work Association of America, they began offering a national certification. That's the one that you mentioned that I had recently gotten. Um, and that's an advanced certification that shows that the practitioner has mastered the competencies within our national model. Um, and we really hope that that's going to help create strong practitioners, more representation, as well as that that parity in our practice. Absolutely. That, that's really interesting. And I think that brings up another question for me. I know that um, in the early days, what we considered school social work, um, a lot of times many school social workers worked primarily in the area of special education, right? Um, maybe working to help ensure IEPs were provided for students and, and, and that those IEPs were being followed to make sure that students had whatever resources they needed available. Would you say that this is still the case with many school social workers or are, are school wor social workers branching out into different areas of professional practice within the school settings? Yeah, so the history of school social work. This is interesting, and <laughs> I want to dive into this. Um, so, like, the very first traditional brick-and-mortar school social workers actually began what was called um, visiting teachers, and I want to, you know, describe that a little bit, but um, I kind of want to go a little bit further back because I think it's really important to first bring attention and recognition of the role social workers have played in schools that maybe don't immediately come to mind when we think of our schools, um, and that's the Indian boarding schools. So, uh, you know, I'm learning this, so I, I actually want to take a little pause here and just share that um, I want to discuss some really difficult historical trauma of our native peoples over the next few moments. So our listeners, like if you need to pause, skip ahead, I encourage you to do that. I know this isn't always a topic that we expect to maybe hear when we've logged on to this podcast. <laughs> um, but I think it's an important piece and I just want to touch on it a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so in 1819, I believe, um, the Civilization Fund Act began, and that was the beginning of the Indian boarding schools and the systemic effort of the U.S. government to forcibly remove children from their homes with the goal of assimilating them. Um, I think some of our listeners have probably heard the quote, kill the Indian, save the child, right? Um, these boarding schools, their only goal was to eradicate our First Nations culture and identity um, through this guise or belief that First Nations did not or do not already have any culture, beliefs, or family values. And this was cultural genocide. Um, these boarding schools were more often than not run by religious organizations, and children were forcibly brought to them from their homes often like states away. Um, there's records of children being taken from southern New Mexico all the way up to Idaho, right? And children as young as three were taken from their families. And if families didn't comply and turn over their kids, they were criminalized. So some native men were sentenced up to 20 years in Alcatraz for refusing to allow the churches to seize their children. 
So I, I bring this up and it's important because social workers were some of those government employees who enforced the removal of native children during that time. And the children were emotionally, physically, sexually abused, neglected, they self-harmed, they ran away, or even completed suicide. And there are thousands of these children who never returned home and are to this day unaccounted for. Their burial sites are unmarked, and that number of child deaths is unknown. And this wasn't just during this time, right, that social workers had a role in this. Um, our role in this cultural genocide continued even after the boarding schools became less common. Um, so in 1958, the Bureau, Bureau excuse me, of Indian Affairs, they started the um, Indian Adoption Project. And this project enlisted social workers to visit reservations and then convince Native parents to sign away their parental rights. So we as social workers have a really long, painful history with our First Nations peoples. And again, I share this because it's really critical that as social workers, we recognize the historical harm that our profession has caused. It's like 1958, like that was when my dad was a kid, you know? Um, and you, you better believe that like those parents, those, those ancestors and these children remember on a cellular level, the harm that we've done. And so I wanna share that because we, we as social workers, we need to walk into our, a door and work and, and know what weight that title carries, right? And what harm that title has, has carried in the past. And Absolutely. I wanna thank you Capella for sharing that because um, we within the social work profession sometimes have this tendency to romanticize the profession and romanticize the history of the profession, right? And um, in order to authentically practice in some of these spaces, I think it's important that we, we understand um, contributions that the profession has made in the past as well to, to, to some of these um, atrocities and to uh, the historical trauma that a lot of a lot of marginalized populations, Native American, Indigenous communities, and, and others that we have contributed to. So I want to thank you for sharing that, absolutely. Yeah, of course. And then back to your initial question. So more like officially, you know, as far as our like brick and mortar schools that we think of, um, you know, down, down the road from where we are now or whatever, um, social workers really started being hired and paid through the schools themselves around the 1930s. Um, and again, that's when they were referred to as visiting teachers. So the visiting teacher's primary role was to be the liaison between home and school. Um, they would help encourage attendance, address any needs of the families, um, things like that. And then at that time, what's kind of, well, interesting for me because I, um, but at that time, there was the National Association of School Social Workers. And then 40 years later, around the 70s, they dissolved to become what's now NASW and SWA. Um, so during that time, we saw a shift and an introduction of like new models in school social work practice. Um, from primarily like a casework model to then start including like group work and systems interventions. Um, 
And then also in that time, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act uh, became law. And that's when working with um, students with special needs became a bigger, more significant role for school social workers. And then, of course, school social work positions really start growing during that time. And you saw more school social workers on IEPs um, and things like that. So in in what ways has the field of social work changed, do you think, in terms of areas where social workers are supporting students in those school settings currently or recently? I think now again it, it can be so it can be so different state to state school to school district to district um it really is different every day um for me a lot of the work that i do is <clears throat> a lot of group work um i have a fairly high caseload and only work part time so a good amount of the work that i'm able to do with students is in groups um, we can do some one-on-one with students. We do home visits for attendance or basic needs, anything like that. Um, crisis intervention, uh, schools, a lot of school social workers do class lessons, um, going into classrooms every week, every day and doing class-wide lessons. Um, student meetings, consulting with other professionals both in and outside the school. Um, and then connecting with those community resources. You know, schools are such a massive hub in our community, so it's so critical to have those community resources around you as well. Absolutely. I think that the skill set that that we bring, that social workers bring to that school setting is is being tapped into in a, in a, in a wider way, I guess you could say. Um, now, many of our listeners may already have a good understanding of this, but can you walk those listeners who've never had any experience with school social work, um, can you walk them through the typical day for a school social worker? I know that you mentioned that, that currently, um, you know, you're doing a lot of groups. Is, is that... Is that something that you see with a lot of your colleagues who are also school social workers or do their days look different? Yeah, and I think for for quite a few, the majority of school social work colleagues that I have, um, groups is a big part of it. And that's a great opportunity to <clears throat> really focus in on the needs of the students. And it can be a bit of a game of Tetris, sort of, kind of putting those groups together and making sure, you know, they're all having the same needs and those same needs are going to be met in the group. Um, So that's a very common one, especially with high caseloads. Quite a few school social workers that I know, we also do class lessons on social-emotional learning. Um, And that can be sort of a year-long experience um, where you're going into a classroom for say like half an hour or an hour every day or every week and that is the school's like SEL curriculum and you're sort of teaching that curriculum or it could be class lessons because you know this 12th grade class is having an issue with x y and z and so you come in to kind of lend that extra support. Um, School social workers really are massive leaders on their campus. So there's a lot of, you know, systemic teams that you might be a part of. Um, And just again, that consultation and 
with other prof professionals on campus is a big part of it too. Absolutely. I, I, it's refreshing to hear that social workers have a bit more um, say-so in terms of having a place at that table and, and, and those discussions. I know that uh, recently uh, my son came home and said, I thought you taught social workers. I didn't know you taught teachers because one of our graduates mentioned that he he had me as a professor as a professor and he was teaching social emotional learning and that was that was you know just a regular class just like PE and music and some of the other specials that they have in school mm -hmm. was you know a couple times a week they go to social emotional learning and it was very refreshing to see that 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 skill set was being utilized in that way to help support um, kids even in my own my son's elementary school. <laughs> I love that. Um, Capella, in your experience, uh, what are some of the challenges that, that you see in your role as a school social worker? This is, again, where I want to emphasize, like, this is just my personal, <laughs> my personal feelings of what's a challenge. Um, for some other people, it might be completely different. Um, for me, when I reflect on this, it's a lot of the things that are challenging to me are systemic problems. Um, like the day-to-day -day stresses that come with the job, like that's all things I signed up for. Like that's why I became a social worker and that's manageable because I've learned how to manage that stress, right? Um, but the systemic stuff, um, that's what's really, that's what gets to me. So one of the things I personally really struggle with is the, you know, more recent increase on attacks on our youth and just their right to equitable education. So like last month, um, you know, we're just a little bit into April as we're recording this, but as of last month, there were over 400 anti-LGBTQ bills, right? Just three months into the 2023 year. And that breaks my heart, but then there's also this like glimmer of hope because um, we're actually seeing a bit of a shift in acceptance. So for example, the human rights campaign, um, they have some data that shows that we're seeing a massive shift in our youth and how accepting and affirming they are of each other's identity expression. And youth today are much more accepting in general of their peers than in previous years. So like, when we were growing up, there was a lot of this talk about being worried to go to school because the kids were going to be picking up on us. But now that's sort of switched, right? Um, and it gives me a lot of hope and it fills my heart. But at the same time, like these children are growing up in a world where there are elected officials who are taking aim at them, at who they are at their core. And school social workers have a lot of responsibility with this to ensure that our students feel welcome and accepted no matter who they are because the bottom line is that all students learn best when they feel safe and they all deserve to feel safe and cared for. Um, and sort of, you know, we just touched on this a little bit, but um, I'm going to flip it a, a tiny bit. We see in conjunction with this anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric, there's also um, a fight against anti-racist teaching as well as social emotional learning or SEL in schools. And we hear things like parents should be the one teaching their kids values, not schools. 
and I'm going to be my authentic self right now, but it kind of makes me laugh a little bit for two reasons. Um, but the first is like our founding fathers created public schools to provide moral instruction, build character, and really like set the tone and virtues of our nation. That, that was the goal of public schools. And I also laugh because like if you are an auntie, a parent, any adult with kids in your life, like if you spend six hours with a kindergartner or any kid, it's really hard to go six hours and not have to have some sort of conversation on like sharing or kindness or like any of those values that like make, you know, that they're saying SEL is so dangerous for, right? <laughs> um, but I want to talk about it a little bit because I know there's some listeners who might not um, completely know what the term SEL is. And I want to, if it's all right, read a little bit from Castle's website. Um, and Castle is the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. So they're like the pioneers or the leaders in the field when it comes to social emotional learning. So I'm going to just like lean on them because I think they could say it better than me. So they say, SEL is an integral part of education and human development. It is the process through which all young people and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills, and attitudes to develop healthy identities, manage emotions, and achieve personal and collective goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and man maintain supportive relationships, and make responsible and caring decisions. SEL advances educational equality and excellence through authentic school family community partnerships to establish learning environments and experiences that feature trusting and collaborative relationships and meaningful curriculum. So this sounds like real familiar to what we as social workers do, right? And in our very core, this sounds like a social work job description, right? And, and it's very reflective of our ethical standards. We teach and advocate for positive relationships. We, you know, advocate for safe and healthy communities. And then going back to that equity, right? There's so many, many studies and evidence-based research that shows that schools who prioritize SEL have uh, higher outcomes on test scores. They have a more positive school climate and overall, um, much higher well-being of their students and staff. Um, and this is what makes it really difficult for myself and other school social workers. We know that this is evidence-based. We know it works. Um, but it's in a very real way tied to our ethical standards, along with the rights of LGBTQ plus students. So when there's this push from state legislators and we start seeing new laws that are forcing school personnel to no longer teach SEL or even to out a student to their guardians, this goes against the core of our ethics. Um, so it's a very tough field to navigate right now and especially in those states where a lot of this destructive legislation has been happening. Um, we've also seen, and this has been going on for mm, about a decade or so, but we've also seen, um, a shift 
and this push uh, to privatize education in America. And I'll use my state, Arizona, as an example because they are the example of privatizing education and how it can go wrong, right? Um, so since around 2014 in Arizona, um, our government officials have been opposing and shutting down legislation and budgets that would supplement public education. So for those who don't know, Arizona ranks 49th in the country for teacher salary, last in the nation for per pupil spending, and does not fully fund kindergarten. So instead of putting money towards those critical pieces, um, our elected officials have been approving um, private school vouchers year after year, which in its most basic sense, um, steals money that's meant for public schools. So I'm gonna try to try to explain it, but this is again where I hope people afterwards will kind of do a little bit of research and dig in. Um, so schools and districts receive like a certain amount of funding from the state and from the federal government, right? Um, and that funding is determined by like the local census on how many students would be attending that school or district. So with the voucher system or what some people call like school choice, a guardian can choose to remove their student from a public school, totally their right, and put them in a private school or homeschool. And the funding that would have been allocated at that public school for that child follows the child and instead given to that private school. So that sounds like kind of fine, but then it gets a little tricky. So if a student leaves their public school, the funding for that student goes to the private school or straight to the family if they're homeschooling. And the public school can't get that funding back. So simplest breakdown, like let's say I have a school of 100 kids and 25 of them go to a private school. So I just lost funding for 25 students. Say I get more kids to enroll back in my school. So now I have 100 students again, but I don't get that money to cover those 25 students. So I'm now operating at 75% funding, even though I have 100% of the students that the budget was initially created for. <clears throat> so let me take a pause real quick. The other kind of issue with this is that these vouchers aren't regulated. So if you've ever um, worked in a school, there's like this red red tape nightmare of something as simple as like having to get approval for purchasing school supplies or like attend a webinar. But private schools and homeschools just aren't regulated in the same way. They don't have to justify every line item, which results in really like no accountability for how that money is spent. Or at the very least, it's a very inequitable system of how our money is spent on children. And additionally, like private schools, they don't have to adhere to the same equity laws as public schools. 
Um, <clears throat> in public schools have been seeing a lot of parents choose to send their students with disabilities to a private school, you know, to try to get more support, more one-on-one, -on -one, and they just return saying that the school either didn't accept them or they were kicked out. And it's creating this like even larger chasm between socioeconomic groups and really like people of color. Um, and again, this is, it's, it's complicated and, um, I hope people kind of do some more research on it because it is really fascinating and interesting how all this works, but it is a very methodical way to drain public school funds and privatize ed education systems. It's very interesting and telling, I think, to me that when I ask um, about challenges you experience in your role, it's not those day-to-day -day micro challenges, right? But it's more looking at these um, systemic changes and systemic inequities and how really there is that trickle-down effect that you're seeing in front of you with the students that you're working with. We, um, and I'm using the collective we um, for society, but sometimes we lose sight of the fact that our children, our, our, our K through 12 children are also multi-dimensional human beings. And so when we focus primarily only on, well, these are the test scores and this is the education to the exclusion of, do they feel safe? Do they feel a sense of belonging? Can, them, can they see themselves excelling in this way? Um, can we create emotional safety? And then is there equity and is there funding? Is there support needed to really create a meaningful, supportive experience where these children can grow? I, I think it's so important, everything that you say. I have a colleague, and I probably have mentioned this in previous podcasts as well, but I have a colleague who uses the mantra, micro is macro and macro is micro and I think you I think you in a very eloquent way are are explaining how this is the reality for school social workers trying to um, do more with less in many instances and also seeing the then the effects of what these macro level policy decisions are having on the students that you're seeing in in school every day yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Capella. Now, I do want to also, you know, there are there's a reason that you continue to be passionate about the area of school social work as well. So would you mind uh, sharing with our listeners a bit about what you, you see are some of the benefits that you find, um, some of the positive areas that, that you've found being a school social worker? Oh, there's, there's a lot. But I mean, like you just said, working in micro and macro and those meso levels. Um, I really enjoy that because I feel like I can, you know, flex so much of my brain in different ways. So there's like the one-on-one -on -one work with students, but then I also, you know, was on a, a school team that our whole purpose was to create a positive culture at our school in a systemic way, right? So then working on those meso levels. And then also on the macro levels, you know, you have to be aware of what's going on in your local legislation and like really advocating for that um, and calling up your legislators and looking at what's happening at the district level. Um, so I like having that kind of complexity. It's not just one-on-one -on -one with a client and that's all I do, right? Um, I also really enjoy working on with like a diverse team of professionals. Um, it's really helped me grow as a professional to 
work with a phenomenal school psychologist, right? An amazing speech pathologist. Um, there's a teacher that I worked with for many years who was a self-contained um, classroom teacher. And just the amount of different, the amount of things that you learn from these different disciplines is just amazing. And, you know, having principals who you can learn these phenomenal leadership skills from, um, I really like that too, just working with a diverse group of professionals. Um, I think to something that also drew me to social work is that, or school social work, is that you can work with students and you kind of have access to these clients, so to say, for a longer time, right? So there are some of my students who I've known literally my whole career who are now in, you know, in middle school going into high school. And I have this like beautiful honor of also working with their siblings and like, you know, having these really strong relationships with their parents, with their families. And that's something that's really hard in other settings. And and I think that just fits my personality, you know, for other people, they may not like that, but I think that's such a beautiful piece of my work. Um, there's kind of like this <laughs> community enmeshment that you might not find like in private practice um, where you're just like, you, you know, you're really connected with the food bank and you know the people there that come by 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 name and you know you know these you know this whole family's history and like oh now their aunt is coming and you know it's there's just so much more involvement that I really I really love and um really it's just it's the kids I'll try not to get emotional but I just love being inspired by them um they lead the way, they clear the path. I don't think it's the adults that do that. I think children do. Their, you know, their voices show a glimpse of what our future is going to be like. And um, <laughs> yeah, bearing witness to their growth and their family's growth. It's a, uh, it's a, it's an amazing honor. It really is. And kids say hilarious things. So you always know you're going to get a really good laugh each day. <laughs> <laughs> that they do <laughs> that that that's amazing Kefala. the the and, and inspiring i think to to think about the the real impact that you've had working with so many children and and families and commute entire communities and being able to to have that lasting impact as they continue to grow and develop. So yes, thank you very much for, for sharing that and, and, and for the work that you're doing. Now, I do want to shift um, focus just a little bit to talk about um, current realities. Now, as our listeners well know, the COVID-19 global pandemic has really rapidly changed the field of social work in so many ways and in so many different areas. And and, and in a little while, I'll, I'd like to talk about how that reality has changed for the kids that you work with. But first, how has the pandemic affected the setting of school social work and school social work jobs? What have you seen in that area? So I think it's going to be interesting, especially looking forward the next few years. During the pandemic and then in the years after, there was sort of this flush of funding, right? We had a massive increase in funding for public education 
um, through like a lot of different federal programs, state programs. Um, and so I, I wish I had the data on it. Um, the School Social Work Association of America is currently working on a, ma a massive census so that we hopefully get some of this data. Um, but I, I believe just, you know, through connecting with and talking with school social workers from across the nation, that there was quite the increase in positions um, in school social work positions across the states um, because of that additional funding. And there was a huge emphasis on social emotional learning um, and building that stability and that safety returning back to school. And so a lot of districts, a lot of states put an emphasis on hiring school social workers. Um, I'm curious to see what that will look like in the next few years. Um, I think in some places that funding is kind of starting to go away. So it'll be interesting to see what remains. And in that respect, I think school social workers need to advocate really hard for their positions right now, um, especially if they're funded by some of this. Um, and that, you know, of course, that puts a lot of pressure on. But another thing that I think really affected school social workers, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners just noticed this in general, was there was, you know, increased crises and mental health concerns across the board. Um, and then in conjunction, there were less mental health supports because we had a lot of practitioners leaving the field, whether they were social workers, counselors, you know, whoever, um, the mental health system was just overwhelmed. And so, of course, you know, that's going to affect schools too, because a lot of our families couldn't get those mental health supports. So then we become the mental health supports on top of the, you know, a lot of other things that we're doing too, um, rather than having kind of that community wraparound type service. Um, I think another thing that directly affected the school social workers is um, there's also this really high number of burnout among staff, especially teachers. Um, for you know some of the reasons, like I've, like I've already discussed, the systemic reasons, um, and again, like school social workers are really leaders on their campuses at, the, at their schools. And so we're not just working with the kiddos, we're also providing a lot of supports to teachers too um, and consulting with them and trying to help make sure that their classrooms are a safe and welcoming environment for them as well. Um, so it was definitely, and that's always been in place, but after the pandemic returning to school, I think that was uh, definitely magnified just because there's such a high burnout. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So looking also at at how the pandemic has affected um, has has affected kids in particular. Now we know that the pandemic has affected school aged children in so many different ways, but really probably nowhere more so than in the school settings. And I've seen this even with my own kiddos. I have uh, two in elementary, one who's going to be in middle school next year, and then one high schooler. And but what had you what did you see in terms of educational needs most affected during the pandemic? And how have kids that you work with 
been impacted as we've moved from the acute pandemic era into the later mm-hmm. stages of the pandemic and, you know, or post-pandemic? You know, it's only 2023. We don't, we don't have a lot of data on this yet. I think it's going to come in, in the, in the years. Um, it just takes time, but I'll, you know, share just from my experience and, and what I've heard from colleagues and other mental health professionals as well. Um, and, you know, maybe make some inferences based on some data that we have from other traumatic events. Right. So we had this global event, this trauma, COVID-19, but I think it's like at the core of so much of this event is just massive loss, loss of jobs, homes, schools, loss of consistency, loss of safety, security, and then of course our loss of loved ones. And this is what I feel like we've seen most in our students is grief and loss. And so like a large part of what we do as school social workers is work with both trauma and grief support and, and treatment of those two things can be different. So anyone who's experienced any sort of grief can understand how major of an impact it has on your world. And we as adults can relate to the struggle of being in a pandemic, but like, imagine if you were five years old again, or when you were in fourth grade. So when I was in fourth grade, that was when the World Trade Centers were hit. And everyone in my generation, everyone alive and cognizant of that event at that time can still remember exactly where they were during that attack. So they did research in the New York City public schools after that event, and they found that 87% So almost nine out of 10 students in grades four through 12 reported at least having one type of reaction six months after the event. So we're doing like some inferring here, but so this traumatizing, horrible event that took place over one morning had drastic effects on the children then. So we can insinuate and imagine how our students now have been even more so affected by nearly three years of COVID, right? And of course, like academics were affected. How could they have not been? Um, Majority of students struggled to learn effectively at home. Some were really successful at it, but I think, you know, we're social creatures. And um, as educators, we, we needed to return to campus with reasonable expectations. So meaning, like we wouldn't be able to teach them everything they missed and trying to do that would overwhelm and distress the students and their teachers. So we really needed to return to campus and start at the basics again. We needed to establish trust and safety for everybody, kids and adults. And then from there, we reestablished expectations and just how to be in school again. This was, this was such a struggle when the first year was constantly changing. So we were in person, now we're virtual, now we're in person again, and then virtual. And once we were finally back fully, really in person, um, the regulations for, for quarantining 
and like the practice of reducing the spread like changed so often, right? And I'm sure you saw that too since you were in the university. So another um, piece of data that we can sort of use to apply this to and you know infer some information, but research on um, transient students or students who are in foster care have been studied and researched um, as far as their academics. And so studies show that for every move a child makes from one school to the next, so just one move, one school to the next, they lose six months of learning. So depending on where you live in the US, like most schools are in session for nine and a quarter months out of the year. So each time you move schools, you're missing roughly two thirds of your learning. And we also know like that, that data in and of itself can tell us a lot, right? And we also know that there was a massive disparity in students' educations during COVID. And there were a lot of reasons for this. Each one is, is unique, but you know, some students had their adults to stay home with them and monitor their learning. Um, others were maybe caring for their younger siblings or had to work. Other families were just trying to find housing or basic needs. And then some families might've just been completely remote and they all worked together. So those kiddos who didn't have an adult over their shoulder helping to like ensure that they logged into their classes or the kids who, you know, can't focus on school because they're suddenly homeless. So just moving a school can cause six months of learning or mislearning. So what about those three years from, from doing school at home with no school, in person, back to home, and that like constantly changing environment, right? Right, right. Yeah, I think that that's, that's incredibly insightful to, to look at. This is what we know and this is what has been proven because we are still so early in this post-pandemic phase that you know, the research is going on currently, but I think that, that that can help us understand some of this prolonged trauma and some of these disruptions to the educational experience that our kids experience so that we can then look to ways to support them currently, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I, I, I do want to ask you that, how can school social workers best support children and adolescents currently? Um, given the current reality, and also how can school social workers best support teachers, administrators, counselors, and other colleagues mm-hmm. that, um, in the school setting currently? Yeah, I, you know, I think at at the very basic, um, you know, we need to look at <laughs> go back to social work one hundred and one and look at Maslow's hierarchy, right? And that needs to be something that's always always placed in mind and just kind of having in the back of our heads too, that our students are still experiencing grief and loss and trauma. Um, So really just taking into account their basic needs first, really taking into account the whole child, the whole family and the whole community really. Um, And I think for both teachers and students, Um, Anyone on your campus, I think a big thing that we need to get back to and really put the highlight on is connection and relationships, 
right? We are social and social creatures. We, we learn, we grow, develop through being with others. Um, and it has, you know, there's all these studies on, on incarcerated people who have been in solitary confinement and the damage it does on their brain system. So the amount of time that we were alone, there was so much loss and connection and so much isolation. And I'm sure the data and the research in a few years is going to show us that that had a massive effect on our brains. And so we learned through relationships, even as a baby, we, we learned from that initial connection with our with our mother or whoever was there when we were first born right and you know if you have been blessed to have beautiful friendships or marriage or whatever you know how much those people in your life have such a massive impact on on your motivation on your mental health on your physical health and that's we missed out on that for three years for two years and so I think really focusing on those connections and those relationships and getting back to that is going to really help build that safe space, that support where students and adults feel more regulated, more calm, more up in their brain and their forward part of their brain to be able to learn and to really participate. Right. But that those relationships have to come first. Absolutely. It's so essential to, to, to everything that we are and everything that we do. And, and, and I think that bringing it back to those basics, bringing it back to Maslow and looking at our basic needs being met and, and that social connection um, to others is that basic need being met as well is, is really important. Um, Capella, now I know that you currently serve as the membership coordinator for the National School Social Work Association. Could you tell our listeners just a bit about this position and this organization on the whole? Um, What is the National School Social Work Association and what is your role there? Yeah, absolutely. So SWA is really the only professional organization for school social workers. Um, It's similar to what NASW is for all social workers, but really it's just for, for you know, the niche of school social work. Um, We host webinars. We do an annual conference. We actually just wrapped up our annual conference a couple weeks ago. Um, We provide tools, practice resources, um, liability insurance, uh, networking opportunities, and then we also have um, state chapters too, so provide support um, for states. And of course, we also advocate for all school social workers on that national level. Um, it's a really wonderful organization. I absolutely love my work there. I love being able to practice on a macro level and um, kind of have that mission, that sole mission of really just driving this particular niche of social work forward and and growing the profession. Um, I definitely encourage our listeners to, to check it out because they have a lot, a lot of resources and information on their website. Absolutely. And so are there, are there, you mentioned there were state chapters as well. Are, are those active in, in every state? Almost every state. I think last time I looked, we had 38 or 40 states that were affiliated with us. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there are some state chapters too. So yeah. 
I, I think that often we we don't realize the importance of having this connection to colleagues and this organized these organized advocacy efforts on that wider stage. Um, but it's important for us to understand, I think, the importance of joining some of these professional organizations. And Capella, how can some of our listeners learn more about school social work if they're interested? Again, checking out SWA's website is a really good place to start. Um, so it's just sswaa.org. Um, again, they have a ton of resources and articles, and they also have a blog, which I think provides really good insight into the field. Um, and then of course there's also like social media groups. So there's a lot of school social work groups on Facebook that you can join. Um, and there's really rich dialogue on those as well. And that can kind of give you a good idea or feeling of what, what this particular role is like. Yeah. That's great. You know, you just finished talking a couple of minutes ago about the importance of connection and finding that support for students and also for um, teachers and administrators and other staff in school settings. I think that this could be a great avenue for school social workers to find that connection and that mutual support as well. And um, other people who understand what it what it's like and who, who can share resources and can be there to provide support, I think is really important. Now, we are almost out of time uh, here, Capella, but I did want to thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your practice experience um, and all of your all of your knowledge. And, and, and I want to thank you for sharing with our listeners the history, the, the good, the bad and the ugly of the history of social work and, and of social work, of school social work in particular, and also um, a bit of understanding that can help us move forward. Where do we go from here in this post-pandemic era and how can school social workers help to lead the way really with with supporting um, the next generation that's coming up so capella thank you so much for your time and, and and for sharing so much of your authentic self with us and with our listeners today we definitely appreciate it and and continue to do the work that you do keep just rock on capella thank you so much <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Great way to spend an hour. Mm-hmm.